you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open up the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Uh, we'll be there shortly here um, and spend some time walking through that. I don't know if you heard this or not, but there is a newly discovered chapter in the book of Genesis that provides the answer to the, the question, where did the animals come from or where did pets come from? How about that? Adam, it, says, it reads this way, Adam said, Lord, when I was in the garden, you walked with me every day. Now I do not see you anymore. I am lonesome here, and it's difficult for me to remember how much you love me. And God said, no problem. I will, comp I, will comp I will create a companion for you that will be with you forever, and who will be a reflection of my love for you, so that you will love me even when you cannot see me. Regardless of how selfish or childish or unlovable you may be, this new companion will accept you as you are and will love you as I do in spite of yourself. Well, and God created a new animal to be a companion for Adam. And it was a good animal. And God was pleased. And the new animal was pleased to be with Adam. And he wagged his tail. And Adam said, Lord, I have already named all the animals in the kingdom. I cannot think of a name for this new animal. And God said, no problem, because I have created this new animal to be a reflection of my love for you, his name will be a reflection of my own name, and you will call him Dog. And Dog lived with Adam and was a companion to him and loved him, and Adam was comforted, and God was pleased, and Dog was content and wagged his tail. After a while, it came to pass that Adam's guardian angel came to the Lord and said, Lord, Adam has become filled with pride. He struts and preens like a peacock, and he believes he is worthy of adoration. Dog has indeed taught him that he is loved, but perhaps too well. Well, and the Lord said, no problem. I will create for him a companion who will be with him forever and who will see him as he is. The companion will remind him of his limitations, so he will know that he is not always worthy of adoration. And God created cats to be a companion to Adam. And Cat would not obey Adam. And when Adam gazed into Cat's eyes, he was reminded that he was not the supreme being. And Adam learned humility. And God was pleased. And Adam was greatly improved. And Dog was happy. And the cat didn't give a hoot one way or the other. In Genesis 1.1, we find the story or the record that says that God created the heavens and the earth. And Moses went on to record in the next uh, 25 verses, verses 2 through 25 of Genesis 1, um, Moses makes very quick work of a lot of creation, of five and a half days of God's preparation of the worlds. Uh, but now on the sixth day, the narrative, as we get to verse 26, which we're going to read here shortly, um, the narrative slows down. It doesn't just kind of summarize and hop through. It slows down. The story becomes unhurried, and it gives greater detail. And uh, it's those details that I want us to look at today as we think about the theme of new lenses. And the new lenses that God wants us to have are, are the in images, uh, the lenses, excuse me, of being made in God's image. In chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, Moses writes these words. Then God said... Let us make man or mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have domain over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was what? It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Moses slows the story down, and if you go into chapter 2 of Genesis, you'll find that there's another, it seems as though another creation story, but it's really not another creation story as much as it is an expansion of what we've just read. And so the focus of Scripture very much is um, on the creation of humanity, of men and women. What a grand claim that is. The claim that you and I are created in the image of the God who made us. And so the question I want to ask you here first this morning is, do you see God's image reflected in yourself? When you look in the mirror, do you see the image of God reflected there? Most of us struggle at some level or periods of time in our life with the questions of, well, who am I and does my life matter and where do I find my worth and why am I valuable? At different points of our life, through different experiences, we pause and we evaluate and we wrestle with that question. Some of you here this morning are young and you're figuring yourself out. That's a hard process. I don't miss those days, to be honest, because um, it's a hard time of life sometimes. You're trying things. You are seeing what you can and can't do. You are finding out what others think about you, and that's not always a pleasant experience. But I pray this morning that you will see God's image reflected in your young and developing life, in your personality, and your character. That when you look in the mirror, you see, I am a human being created in the image of God. Some of you here in this room today are, are in the middle stages of life, and you're trying to refigure life out at a new stage. Life may or may not be what you thought it would be years ago, and you're still asking the question, who am I? Does my life matter? Where do I find my worth? Why am I valuable? And I pray today that you will see God's image reflected back to you when you look in the mirror. And some of you here are older and toward the later part of your life. And life is changing, but you're still wrestling with the question of who am I? Does my life matter? Where do I find worth? You, question, you ask that question of yourself just as much as you ever have, except you try to answer it with a lifetime of experiences, some of them successes, some of them painful failures, and everything in between. And it makes one think. But I pray this morning that you will see God's image reflected in you at this stage of your life as well. You see, because of this biblical claim that we are made in the image of God, there is an inherent dignity a worth placed over your life, no matter what your age is, not ha that has nothing to do with what you can or cannot do. It has nothing to do 
with what you do or don't look like. It has nothing to do with whether your life is going well or whether your life is a struggle in many ways. This truth, when you see that I am created in the image of God, means that you are an image bearer, made in the likeness of the God who made you. And I hope as you hear that, that that rings as good news to you. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 actually is trying to tell you. You see, in chapter 1, verse 26, as you read through that chapter, there's a pretty quick rhythm going on. But as you get to verse 26, that rhythm slows down. We already said that in chapter, beginning in verse 1, he, he goes, he ticks things off really quickly with massive amounts of creative energy that's going on. But then he pauses as you get to the end of that chapter, into chapter 2, to kind of focus in on some key things that are happening in that part of the story. On the sixth day, the narrative slows down. The story becomes unhurried and gives greater detail. It's not just, I created this and it was good. I created this and it was good. He doesn't just continue on, just throws people in there. But after creating the universe and putting everything in its proper place, God deliberates in the Godhead with himself, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's deliberation shows that he has decided to create mankind differently than any other creature that he has made. He's going to make these beings in his image and likeness. And all of a sudden, a conversation inside the Godhead when he says, let us make mankind in our image becomes very personal. It's no longer just things God does out there. This is a personal connection with God himself. And so out of the overflow of God's unity and joy and perfection, he begins to paint the glory of humanity on the canvas of creation. And then in the vastness of this universe, on this tiny little dirt ball in one of the smaller solar systems in this expansive universe, God places the crown jewel of his creation, men and women, made in the image of God and endowed with worth and dominion and authority. The image of God, you may have heard it called over the years in church history stuff, Imago Dei. I think is Latin, but I'm not very smart, but I think that's what that is. Imago Dei, it's God's investments in humanity of God-like glory, of moral capacity to know our creator and to reign and rule on earth as his representatives, to care for his creation in a way that would honor him. And that sets humanity apart from other parts of creation, which have wonderful traits, wonderful things about them, but they are not like us. Verse 27 is probably the first poem in the Bible. It's not a roses are red, violets are blue. Um, it's not that kind of poem. But it is Hebrew poetry. It is a poem that says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That poetry shift just again pauses and highlights something. In the Bible, God didn't have the bold button to hit on his Word document when he wrote the Bible, or he didn't have a highlighter. So if you want to highlight something in biblical language, you repeat it. And so three different times, this text, this verse alone, says that God created human beings, men and women, in his image. And so we should not miss the point that God is trying to communicate. And so I would ask you this morning, when you look in the mirror... Do you see an image bearer of the creator? Do you see an image bearer of God himself? 
I would dare say that life can be hard on us. Life can be pretty good about undermining or eroding our dignity, our worth, our value. And sometimes we can find ourselves feeling pretty small or beat up or beat down or just empty. And so it's important to ask the question then, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does that mean when I'm, I'm looking and I'm, I'm reflecting in the mirror? Well, there are many things that being created in the image of God means. When you read through Genesis 1 and 2, you get lots of descriptive pictures of, of the God that we are created in the image of. And so it's helpful to stop and think, well, if I'm created in the image of God, what, is, what do I learn about this God in these, just even these couple chapters? Um, I think the first thing that you find is the relational aspect that animals and other things can know their creator, but they don't relate to God at the level of knowing that you and I do. We are built as God is, built relationally. Um, you get pictures throughout scripture of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who, who live in perfect relationship with each other and harmony with each other. And we are created to know God as he knows us. And likewise, we are created to know one another and to be known by other people. Relational parts of that is a huge part of being made in the image of God. We're made that we can know him and enjoy fellowship with him. But you also find other things that are poured into humanity that was not poured into other beings. Uh, imagine the one who imagines and initiates, right? Just look at the beauty and the incredibleness around you. A God who does that and the creativity of people, right? I'm not a very creative person, but boy, when I see that at work in someone else's life, I think, man, that's, that's impressive. That's God As it's in that, who imagines and initiates. God communicates and speaks value. God delights and appreciates over and over. He says, this is good. He appreciates something that is good that he has made. He influences environment for the good, he is creative, organized, thoughtful. He is ingenu ingenuity. You see that a God who loves, who cares, and is concerned for other beings. He is self-aware. He, he knows his place, and, and we, we can know our place in the world. You find a God, as you go into chapter 2, who lives in, in rhythms of life, that, that there's six days of work, and then in the next, very next thing you find in the text in chapter 2 is that God rests on the seventh day. And I know every person involved in teaching or going to school, I asked them how their week went, said I was tired, right? And so there's a good rhythm that God demonstrates that as beings made in God's image, we are made to work, to do, but there's also time to rest, to stop. That's God in us. And so do you see God's image, your God-given dignity and worth and just the uniqueness of your being in yourself? I would simply ask you that and, and really ask you to, to drill into that because I think sometimes, like, yeah, I made a God's image, but then we, maybe we're negative with our self-talk or, or maybe we allow the opinions of other people or the actions of other people to kind of put that down inside of us and we just don't feel like much. Again, this, this is not a teaching that's supposed to create pride and arrogance. We'll see that shortly. But it ought to create a sense of dignity and worth that you have as a created human being. And so you have that. And I hope that when you look in the mirror, you see that reflection as you look at that person there. But I would ask you this, a second question. Do you see others as image bearers? 
Because you're not the only person in the universe who has dignity and worth given by your creator. When you look at other people, do you see them as image bearers as well? Do you recognize God's image in other people? Now, I can probably find a few people that I like. Maybe they're like me. And I, oh yeah, certainly I see God's creation in them. That's, that's God's image on them. But I can find a lot of other people maybe don't see the world like I do or aren't like me or don't like me or whatever. And uh, you can quickly begin to diminish those people. We all have that tendency if we're not careful. Um, and we all think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. But I loved what this little quote said. I, I thought I was a good person, but the way I react when people drive slowly in the left lane would suggest otherwise, right? So I could make a long list of things that I thought I was a nice person until... And then I wasn't a very nice person after that. So I said things that spoke about my impression of their value as a human being, right? We've done that both little and big ways. Social media is awesome for that. Um, you see, one of the realities that sin brought with it in Genesis 3, as you keep reading from 1, 2, and 3, is that instead of resting in the dignity of our creator who offers us that value and dignity, when we lose that connection, when we lose that relational connection with God, the world, we see the world through very different lenses now. And I see God differently, but I also see people differently. People are no longer co-heirs and co-wearers of the, of the image of God. Now people are competition. And people are, are the enemy in so many ways. And so now we fight to prove our worth and our competence, most often at the expense of others. We may not do it intentionally, but we tend to do that. We build ourselves up by pushing other people down. And that's true at a big level, but it's also true at very personal levels. I think a lot of the isms of our day come from that whole idea, right? Racism or sexism or ageism or classism or nationalism, all the isms that we hear floating around, so many of them have roots in one person, one group is pushing others down so they might be lifted up. But that's not just true at a national big theme level. That's true in your home. All right? If you're married, think about your relationship with your other person and uh, just the times when you begin to argue or fight and there can be a very prideful response to that where, well, I have to feel valuable and worthwhile and so... I'll do that at the expense of pushing someone else down instead of humbly lifting them up. And that can be true in marriages. That can be true with our parenting. That can be true in just friendships and churches and businesses. That can be true in so many places. We can be pretty good at devaluing other people, devaluing their worth or dignity, um, so that we might feel better, better and built up ourselves. And so when we do that, we are capable of doing unthinkable things that normally in our sane moments, we would think, I would never say that or do that. But we all look back and think, oh, I would have thought I would have never said that or done that. And why do we do that? Well, let me give you a couple of examples biblically. Genesis 4, you get Genesis 3, Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve and they fall in sin. And they're separated from God, have to leave the garden where they walked in perfect fellowship with him. Genesis 4 tells about Adam and Eve's family. Cain and Abel were their children. Um, Cain gets upset at Abel, not because of something Abel had done to him, but because he was angry at God and he didn't feel very valuable to God. And so he took it out on his brother 
and he kills them. Genesis 4, verse 8 says, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? First of all, he answers in his, he lies in his answer to the question. But second of all, he asks that question, Am I my brother's keeper? And God doesn't answer the question, but what do you think God's implied answer would be if, we, if he expects us to see the worth and dignity in others? Yes, I am my brother's keeper. I, I am responsible. Cain is responsible for his brother's well-being. But he has neglected that, and he has eliminated his life. And so the Lord said to him in verse 10, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Um, go to Genesis 9, verse 6. Uh, you find after the flood... God's just kind of doing some teaching about the value of life. And um, whoever sheds human blood, verse 6, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. And throughout the rest of the Bible, God keeps appealing to this very baseline that other human beings are image bearers too. So be careful about your exercise of, of dominion or whatever the word is in Genesis, authority, or just your, your rights or whatever that you don't tread on another person who has been made in the image of God, just like you have. Go to the New Testament. James speaks very clearly, and not just about actions, but even about our words, but our tongues. How much damage can we do to another person through the words that we say? James 3 is a long teaching about the, da the damage that the tongue can do, the, the harm that the tongue can do. In James 3, 8 and 9, he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And we've done that, right? If you sang along this morning, we sang wonderful words of praise and, and adoration to God. How great he is and how, how much he can help us and how good he is. But then James says, with the same tongue that we praise our Lord and Father. And then with it, we curse human beings who have been what? Who have been made in God's likeness. What does James appeal to? Say, control your tongue. Careful your words. He appeals to this whole Imago Dei thing. Those people are made in God's image, and yet we will use our tongues to curse them, to wish harm on them, to bring harm into their life through our words. And so if you are a person who sees and, and recognizes the worth of another how does that shape your life? This is probably a sermon by itself, but I think, first of all, just appeals to our eyes that we see people differently. If you are a follower of Christ, there are so many things to get us angry and riled up and frustrated with the world. And the normal way of the world is quite evident, but a Christian sees people, first of all, it sees people, right? And then it sees people differently. It sees worth in people that maybe you completely disagree with or frustrate you to no end. They see worth. Doesn't mean we agree all the time or at all, but it means we see worth. And we then, maybe we hold our tongue, James 3. We don't say the same things that a non-God, uh, Christ follower would say. We hold our tongue. We speak differently in our good moments. Maybe we offer a hand. The Good Samaritan is a beautiful story of that in the Gospel of Luke Right? Um, the Samaritan sees someone who is ethnically, culturally, religiously completely different in great need on the side of the road. And yet he crosses all those barriers because he sees another person who has been made in the image of God. 
He offers a hand. They soften our hearts. And so that's what we're called to, right? But that's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because we have this tension. And so how do I work with this tendency that works against me, right? This tendency to, to know, yeah, this is the big idea that, man, we're all made in the image of God. But boy, I daily and moment by moment wrestle with this whole idea. Well, how do I treat people that way? How do I do that? Well, I think every situation is different and things are hard. But I think the process that we engage in is the last thing I want you to see. Number three, here's a third question. Am I surrendered to and seeking to allow my image to be redeemed and renewed through Christ? That's a long question, I know. Am I surrendered to and seeking to allow my image, the image of God that has been marred, um, am I surrendered to and seeking to allow my marred image to be redeemed and renewed through Christ? And that word marred is important because Adam and Eve were made in Genesis 1 and 2 in God's image to walk in perfect harmony with God. But then Genesis 3 happens. Now, their worth, value, and dignity does not go away even though they sin and their relationship with God is separated. Their worth and value and dignity still stays in place, but their actions, especially towards others, begins to get damaged, and they don't act towards each other like they should have. And so that word marred is important. I love the visual image in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Um, and I think this contrasts that there are two options that I can choose to live out of. He says this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, right? Now, I love that analogy, right? There's the man of dust that I can be, a person of dust. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so there are two images that I can be growing into and, and reflecting out of my life. The man of dust, which is simply my earthly, fleshly part, or who's the man of heaven? I can become like Jesus, right? The man of heaven is just, I can be growing in one of those two directions. And all of us are. I'm, like, I'm becoming one of those two people. I'm either becoming the man of dust or I'm becoming the man of heaven in my nature, in my reactions to people. And so if you have a Bible, you can look at Colossians chapter 3. I just want to read through about 15 verses here. I'm not going to say much because Paul is pretty clear. But I want to read it in just the lenses of... Am I growing towards a person of dust or the man of heaven? Who am I becoming more like? All right, let's define that with this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So what's he call us to first? There's a, a seeking, right? I've got to be pursuing to say, you know what, God? I want the image that lives within me to be as much like it can be from Genesis 1 and 2, not from Genesis 3, 4, and 5 and onward. That's the man of dust versus the man of, of heaven. So what am I seeking? It's got to be a pursuit on my, on my part. So it says in verse 2, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Paul uses all this salvation language about this new you that we're going to look at. And, and so oftentimes we find scriptures and find verses about putting our faith in Christ, about repenting of our sins in Christ, about being baptized into Christ. And all this language about this new person that we have become, it almost always encompasses this life-death analogy, right? That there's this old dusty version of me that has to die. And it won't die unless I'm seeking and setting my mind on something above. 
That person has to die. And Christ, that's not a me thing. That's a Christ thing. As I surrender to him and I seek him, he begins to do that work in me with my cooperation so that I seek him and I set my mind on him and he begins to get rid of the man of dust and he begins to create the man of heaven, the person of heaven within me. And then Paul goes on and gives examples of what's it look like to be the person of dust. Well, verse five, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. In other words, you used to be that dusty version of yourself when you were living in them. But now, verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being, and pay attention to this, here's the transition from the person of dust to the man of heaven, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, where does he take us back? You were made for more than just to live marred and broken and dirty. You were made to be clean and new, to be restored and renewed back to that original image that God made Adam and Eve to be. And so that also affects our relational dynamics, right? Here then in this new place, in this new place that we live, there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all of those people. So no longer all the old dividing barriers and all the isms, they come together because Christ brings us together in him. And so we must put them all away. So what am I seeking to be? Am I seeking and asking and participating to allow Christ to get rid of the old dusty version of me, to make me more and more into the, the man of heaven, into that image. And then finally, Paul finishes this way in verse 12. So there's the old dusty version of me we read before. Now it goes, but, uh, but put on then, excuse me, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here's the new person, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. God calls us to be engaged in a process of the old dusty version of me, the old dirty version of me being made into the man of heaven. That will not happen without seeking, setting my mind on, surrendering to the one who can make that transition happen in my life. And so we come today and we ask God to do that for us. Um, and so today I just would simply ask you these questions. Maybe you're here today and I don't know which part of this rings truest in your life. Maybe you're just really struggling with that image that you see in the mirror. And the thing that you need to hear most of all is that you are created in the image of God. That gives you inherent worth, dignity, and value. Apart from anything you do or don't do or have done or didn't do, apart from all the stuff, you have inherent worth because you are made in the image of God. So maybe you need to hear that today. Or maybe you need to hear there are a lot of people around you who also bear that image 
and you are either reinforcing God's view or you are undermining God's view and how you treat them. Again, you're either reinforcing God's view of them or you're undermining God's view of them so that they think less of themselves. So may we treat people recognizing that they have that value too. But that's not easy. That is a hard life to engage in. We need help. And so it's by surrendering and seeking and setting our minds on him, on the man of heaven, on Jesus, that we begin to find that old, dusty, dirty version of ourselves to be cleaned up and made more and more like Christ. I will just read this passage from Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. It just reminds us of that path. What does that look like? God says this at the end of the book of Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, and on earth is my footstool. Again, God's greatness and glory is shown there. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things so that they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on favor with, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. May we be that. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we uh, come today just asking in this moment for you to minister to our hearts. All of us need that reinforcing truth that we are made and created. And because of that, we have an intrinsic worth and value. So much of our life is performance-based and we're waiting to see what other people think. But God, will we hear it loudly today that our worth, our value has nothing to do with our performance. It is about our creation. And so may we feel that. May our souls feel the weight of that today, of that worth and dignity. And Father, may we also be humble enough to recognize that our treatment of other people can either help or hinder them feeling the worth of their souls. And so, Father, would you give us the humility of spirit, the contriteness of spirit to know that with you in our life, when we're submissive and surrendered to you, that we can bless other people, that we can bump and nudge and lead other people in the direction of being image bearers, to feeling their dignity through the way we treat them. So, Father, help us to do so. That can be confusing. That can be hard when tensions and words and chaos seems to be around us. But Father, would you open our eyes, soften our hearts, make our hands and our hearts and our minds and our words ready to serve so that we might bless and lift up another. Father, forgive us for all the dusty, dirty parts of our life, for our character, of our image. Forgive us of those things. Renew those. Restore us in those things today so that we might be more and more like the man of heaven, like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.